I want to open with a question that does require your response. And I want to preface it that I won't get my feelings hurt, nor will I report back to the yearly meeting what you say, if that gives you any more freedom to answer this. But the question is, is when I say church planting, what are your first immediate thoughts? Woohoo. Woohoo. A tree. A tree. Yes. So we got woohoo in a tree. <laughs> Anything else? Maybe you don't really have thoughts one way or another. The importance of people knowing the Lord. Lots of work. Not easy. Neighbors getting together. Weeha. <laughs> A question. How do you even go about that? Yeah. Helping people that don't know God. Good leadership to do it to get it started. Yeah. <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> yeah. That's why I had this preface. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't mean it that way. It's just a question that I have. Uh, I think we're all probably, I hope, on board with the idea of church planting. But I have um, been connected in the past with a couple of church plants where my question was why. <laughs> because in the given area where these church plants were, there seemed already to be an abundance of gospel preaching churches mm-hmm. and um, I just it wasn't why are we planning a church it's why are we doing it here and wouldn't it be better someplace else where they're busy so, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah definitely to me it's being wherever you are letting people know about God right? being wherever you are letting people know about Christ church planting Seem to be really what the first disciples practice in the New Testament. We have lots of uh, situations of it in Acts. And I just, since I just love preaching verse by verse, I, I couldn't help but think of it this way. <laughs> so if you want to go to Acts 18, that's where we're going to be this morning. It's kind of a launch point. We're going to look through what happened in Acts 18. But I, I think it will also help us with this theme of exploring this theme of church planting and considering what evangelical friends is observing this Sunday. So Paul is on his second missionary journey. And this is the journey where he saw the the vision of the man of Macedonia. Uh, Macedonia is Greece, Europe, and uh, Corinth is in a region uh, south of Macedonia called Achaia. So that's where we're going to read. Let's look at Acts 15, or excuse me, Acts 18. 18, verses 5 through 8 together. I do invite you to stand if you're able to, and let's read this together. We read, And when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, 
Paul devoted himself fully to the word. Now, other manuscripts would say Paul was compelled by the Spirit here, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed and insulted him, he shook out his garments and told them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Uh, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his whole household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard the message believed and were baptized. Let's pray. Father, as we explore this theme of church planting together, we bring to the table maybe questions, maybe well-founded criticisms, maybe excitement. And Father, we don't, as Quakers, just want to come because it's what the rest of our brothers in our certain slice of the evangelical pie are doing. But we want to see what you, what are you doing? What are you inspiring leaders to do with planting churches? Father, would you use any of us in any way, shape, or form? In other words, Lord, we want to hear your voice. We want to respond to your prompting of the Spirit. And Father, I, so I pray that you would be the one speaking and not myself. Help us to fully understand what it is you want us to understand today. And help us, Holy Spirit, to respond accordingly and obediently because you are worth it. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of this message today is, Who Needs Church Planting? And since it is that title, I looked into our text just for verses, and I want to talk about five necessities that I see. In this passage, we see a locational necessity, a demographic necessity, then a thick skin necessity, a facility necessity, and then finally a rewarding necessity. But even before all that, I want to back out further to perhaps an understood maybe nevertheless not voiced impetus as to just explain for us, hey, Paul is out here far from home setting up a church. Why? <laughs> right? Why Why do we Christians do what we do? What compels us? What motivates us? Why this of all things? For Luke, he sets the stage in Acts. A key verse of Acts is Acts 1.8. If there was ever a thesis statement of a book... It's Acts 1.8, and Luke records there Jesus speaking to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the whole plot of Acts. <laughs> the Holy Spirit empowering people, them being witnesses, firstly in Jerusalem, the surrounding Judean region, after persecution in Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, culminating in Rome, which was really just the center of their world. Now, we just study through all of Acts, and I have to say that was a, a subtle hindrance of me saying, do I really want to go to Acts this Sunday? We were just in there forever. But, empowered to witness. I believe that was Luke's subtle way in Acts eight of sharing what Jesus said in his great commission. 
as Matthew records it in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. I believe that's the Holy Spirit's promise. By the Holy Spirit, he's with us. Then go and make disciples. Go and witness. Now, since we Christians have a great way of arguing more than obeying, I have met Christians who even say, well, let's keep this in perspective. Christ was talking to his disciples to evangelize the ancient world. What's that got to do with me? Are you a disciple of Christ? He still wants us to go and evangelize. So maybe we should stop arguing and start obeying. And if you're not going to, the rest of this message will be of no value for you. Paul was confronted by this Christ. Paul hated Christ. And instead of planting churches, he persecuted the church, period, until Christ confronted him and told him, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness. Sounds like the same appointment that God made with the other disciples. A witness of what you have seen from me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those sanctified by faith in me. So this is the background. I don't think anyone is exempt. Everyone should be witnessing Christ. Now, will it be flashy in uniform and cookie cutter? No. We read from Paul in places like 1 Corinthians or Ephesians where he talks about the body of Christ and how we all contribute. There is diversity, I know you love that word conservatives, there is diversity in our services and gifts, but the basis is this, we are Christ's witnesses. So this is the baseline, this is the understanding as we head back over to Acts 18, we see the planting of this church in Corinth, and the first necessity when it comes to church planting is locational necessity, verse 5 again said, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul is already here, but Silas and Timothy are coming down from Macedonia. Verses 8 and 11 in this chapter tells us that, hey, there's Corinthians where they're at. It means they're in Corinth. (laughs) Now, it's understood that they're on a missionary journey, so their hope is, of course, to make disciples in all the cities they go to. And in Corinth, it's likely that there are no Christian fellowships. However, we do meet in Corinth that Paul meets uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Or maybe that's Aquila. I don't know. Uh, When Paul meets them, they're already Christians. So it could be that they're meeting at a synagogue already and Paul just joins them at their synagogue. We do know that there was a... Uh, Emperor Claudius, and they had, he, there was this expulsion of Christians from Rome. And, uh, the reason for the expulsion, according to some history, 
is due to a disagreement over or a conflict of Jewish Roman citizenry over a person named Christus. <laughs> Maybe Jesus Christ. It's spelled a little bit different than he's spelled in other documents. So it could have been that's when Priscilla and Aquila came to Corinth. Acts 2.10 records Pentecost. Some of the faithful Jews from Rome came to Jerusalem. They heard what happened at Pentecost. So Priscilla and Aquila could have came, or there are some other people who came and heard uh, the, the gospel message at Pentecost, went back to Rome, and that's how Priscilla and Aquila maybe became Christians. We don't know. But it seems that the couple is a, a Christian here. They happen to also be tent makers, which is what Paul is doing. So they get together, and they're both Christians, they're both tent makers. But even if there is a small gathering of believers around Priscilla and Aquila, Paul sees the need to set up another fellowship of believers. And you know, as I think about church planting, if you were here two Sundays ago, our assistant superintendent, Alan Weinacht, informed us that there is the want of another fringe church in Lewiston. And Jim, I'm glad I didn't pay you to say what you said, because I had right down in my message, I can already hear, are there not enough churches in Lewiston? Now, some of you, you come here because it's the closest church, the only church on the hill. What? Only reason, yep. It's definitely not for Kevin's preaching or, no. It's the snacks. I come here personally for coffee. If it wasn't for coffee, I'd be somewhere else. Okay, and I do get paid, but. I know and love neighbors who go to great churches in the valley, maybe a half hour drive. And so, maybe my people might pride themselves on, well, Woodland Friends isn't everything I grew up with or I'm familiar with. Maybe there are some things that I've desired Woodland Friends wouldn't do or should do. But hey, it's biblical, so I go. And so then the idea might be for a capital F friend, an evangelical friend who moved to Lewiston, we might say, join one of the many Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching churches and live with it. Why set up another church? Is every gospel centered at church at seating capacity in Lewiston? My thoughts exactly. <laughs> I don't know if you caught it. I did because I probably hear Jim Lashana say it in every conversation I have with him. It takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. Now, certainly the conservative Pharisee in me would like to say, well, deal with it. <laughs> Suck it up, buttercup, because if somebody really wants Jesus, just go to a church that preaches Jesus. There is an agreeable aspect to that. I do wish that people had the maturity and submission to, instead of demand a specific brand or style of worship, to just head to the nearest Jesus-loving church. But you know what I find in the scriptures? Sometimes Christ appeals to selfish motives to bring people into following him. People who went to him simply wanting to be healed or or their blindness restored or, or leprosy. And then he heals them and then he says, go on your way. But then what happens? It says, but he turned around and followed him on the way. Or the disciples leave Jesus to go get some food. And lo and behold, in the village, there's a man exercising a demon in the name of Jesus. And the disciples come back to Jesus and say, hey, this guy's never been with us. He's never been in our church is what it amounts to. 
But he's using your name like he knows you and, and follows you. And Jesus says, those who aren't against me are for me. Right? In fact, in John, we do have a sad narrative of when he feeds the crowds loaves and fishes, and then they seek him out across the lake. And so then he says, I'm the true bread, feast on me. But it says it turned many away after hearing that. So we have lots of people following Jesus for their own selfish reasons, and we see some people stick with him. Other people say, no more loaves and fishes. Well, never mind. Paul for Corinth, he's going to write them a letter later after this founding, and he reveals early on in 1 Corinthians 1 that there are already growing divisions in Corinth. Does this mean that the churches that were already meeting were big enough to expand to other houses and meeting places? Does it mean that maybe numerically, maybe there wasn't a demand for more meeting places, but there was a sin of sectarianism already taking place? And when they do divide, Paul demands, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree together so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be united in mind and conviction. Now, I do note a glaring absence of, so get back under one roof. Don't divide in numbers until it's absolutely necessary. No, just so long as the church in Corinth agree, have no divisions and be united in mind and conviction. I had a ministerial association meeting this past Thursday. There were a few denominations represented, but we all were united and agreed with one another. And it's possible that if all of us went to one of those other churches, we might all fit under one sanctuary. Why, why don't we? Plus, we, we also know that when it comes to organization and theology and practices on paper, there is division. It is a sad reality of the fall. Sin is trying to break the church, but I believe Christ redeems it. In Revelation, we said, we see said about Christ, because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God those from every tribe and tongue And people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Or John also envisions in Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked and I saw a multitude too large to count from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Now I know these are references more broadly to different geographical locations or what we might call races of people, different cultures, different languages. But I also wonder if Christ, if in Christ, just as there is no Jew or Gentile, I wonder if there is also no Baptist or Quaker or Nazarene. Or despite what the world recognizes, Jew, Gentile, American, Canadian, African, whatever, And despite the fact that the world recognizes Quaker, Baptist, Methodist, whatever. You know, I know many Americans who pride themselves on nationalism. But are also saved. I may not always agree with the nationalism, but I do believe they're saved. And thank God, I think God's happy too that they have received him. Even though God has his own nation, you would rather have you be proud about. And I also know many denominations and some folks from those denominations devout champions of their brand, but they're saved. And furthermore, many people are drawn to specific cultures permeating these denominations. 
So while some might not enter a church where there's no coffee, or maybe a certain preaching style, or why does he preach out of that translation, or why does he talk about coffee all the time, they might go to a church that preaches a different way, or out of that translation, or talks about this, or that, or maybe has communion every Sunday. They do, they do these things. Demographics. Selfish reasons for selfish draw. Don't send me to a Baptist church. By golly, I want a fringe church, so let's plant one in Lewiston. Right? Paul here, he had a definite demographic in mind when he came to Corinth. We read in the second half of verse 5, it says, Paul devoted himself fully to the word testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now, a few things I want to make note of. This is after Acts 15. This is post-Council of the Church, where it was decided that indeed the gospel, the fact that the Jewish Messiah came to die for sins, was a ministry for all people. Not just the Jews. Many Jews believe that their Messiah not only came for a physical kingdom restoration, which ended up didn't seem to be the case, but many Jews also believe that the Messiah came only to offer salvation or deliverance for an ethnically Jewish people, descendants of Abraham. But throughout the gospel account where Jesus did his ministry, he seemed to drop hints. He went to a historically uh, Gentile, uh, the catch-all word meaning non-Jewish, He went to Gentile regions, he performed miracles, and then he said, tell your people about me, right? Then, in Paul's first missionary journey, he ends up witnessing to non-Jewish people, and oops, they're getting saved. And Peter, in Acts 10, he memorably visits a Roman soldier, not a Jewish man, historically an enemy to the Jewish people. But Luke records that this man was devout and God-fearing, he loved Yahweh, And Peter invites him into the family of Christ. Oops, he's saved too. And so my point is, is by the time when Paul is at Corinth, certainly a historically Greek, therefore non-Jewish region, nevertheless note that Paul is interested in a particular demographic. Namely, for many reasons, or no doubt I should say for many reasons, the Jews. Now, it makes sense. They have the entire Old Testament as something that they should believe. They should be familiar with the talk of a Messiah. So it's like they have a starting ground. I know 50 years ago, even in America, when the Bible and Bible stories were more generally floating around, some of its content was more generally known. You had a baseline. If you brought up Noah in the flood, or if you dropped a phrase like Good Samaritan... Even a, a non-churchgoer, a non-believer is going to have a little bit of knowledge, hopefully, of what you're talking about. So there's a reason Paul is not going to the pagan Corinth temple where they can't spell Yahweh and they don't know what Torah means. No, he's going to the Jews. And you and I know that it's not that Paul doesn't love the non-Jews. In fact, circumstances are going to make him eventually reach out to them. It's just that Paul has a demographic in mind. And it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. I mentioned my ministerial association. Did you know that a person who attends the association is a German missionary who came to Idaho for what? To largely reach out to the Nez Perce tribe. Talk about demographics, and I'm just offended every time he's around me. You don't care about me? 
<laughs> no, I, that's not what's happening. But he went to our homeland. It's a foreign country for him, but he came to our homeland. And while he certainly shares his ministry, you know he's preached up here before. He's preached in local churches across the valley. But the Lord laid on his and his wife's heart to reach out to a local demographic. So thinking about Lewiston, what if it's not that the would-be Christians should suck it up buttercup and attend any of the local God-fearing congregations in Lewiston? Nothing against the local God-fearing congregations in Lewiston. But I wonder if there's a lot of broken sinners who might not respond to certain styles of Christianity, but they might respond to a friend's church. Especially if there's a novelty of new. What's this? It's just a possibility. That's all I'm saying. I remember back in the late, the late 2000s and the early 20-teens, I was developing my preaching skills from Valley View Nazarene. Well, I was invited to Weipe to preach at a Wesleyan church. And on paper, the Wesleyans are actually really close to the Nazarene church. In fact, there have been movements to try to merge the denominations. But to be honest, I think all that's stopping it is we don't want people to lose their offices. <laughs> But also I was called to go and preach at another spot, wait for it, at the Kuski Elementary School cafeteria. Why? Because there was a Kuski Wesleyan church plant for a while. And I believe it was actually the son of the pastor of the Weeye Wesleyan church was trying to set up a church in Kuski. I ended up preaching in a very informal setting, which was very hard because I like to read my manuscripts. And so people can tell that you're doing that if they're sitting right next to you. And... uh that's because there was only about four or five people there that Sunday. And eventually the church, which maybe saw a total to about 10 to 20 people, disbanded. The pastor had to leave. I can't remember everything. But in any case, the members were absorbed into Valley View Nazarene. And a few of the folks, uh, I think to this day, are still attending Valley View Nazarene from that Wesleyan church plant. Sometimes things like that happen. We see in Acts 18.6 our text, but when they, the Jews that Paul is trying to preach Christ to in Corinth, when they opposed him and insulted him, he shook out his garments and told them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Church planters have to be resilient people. And they have to have prayer warriors behind them, true, practical, willing supporters behind them, because... Whatever you and I might believe about the necessity or even the non-necessity of a church plant in an area that already sees Bible-believing churches, when a faithful follower or plural followers of Christ set out to plant a church in a community that will hopefully continue to carry out the Great Commission in their own context, I don't know. I don't think the enemy likes that. Uh he doesn't, and opposition will come. So I think there is a necessity of thick skin here. And we read this. Let us not overlook the emotions of this. Paul, you know that he had persistence in community after community to show up to that demographic he likes, the Jews, first. And we read his heart in places like Romans 9. He says, I have deep sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my own flesh and blood, the people of Israel. I mean, I read that and basically Paul is saying, if a second crucifixion would help all the Jews come in, all, 
send me. He wants them to be saved. He knows firsthand, Paul does, the religious fervent opposition to Christ. But he also knows firsthand the warmth and surpassing peace that comes from surrender and yielding to their Messiah. But he needs to be thick-skinned. See, never in any of these locations in all the book of Acts did I see a setback like this force Paul to say, well, I'm done here. No, rather, he seems to go on. It, it does force Paul to change plans. We read here in verse 7, So Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. I don't know what Paul had in mind whenever he came there. Perhaps he knew something like this might happen. As he said, that, uh, the, as I said, the Jews rejecting him had become a habit, unfortunately. But what I do know is that for church planters, as we just discussed, things don't always happen as they expect, or they plan, or they wish for. Uh, for this want of a fringe church in Lewiston, who knows what will happen. Perhaps this lady will get a few interested people, it might become a Bible study, and then it might say, stay a house Bible study for quite some time. This Titus Justice invites Paul into his house. We're not told who he is. Now, some estimate that houses in Corinth of the larger sort could host anywhere from 40 to 50 people. And so I know there are some house church movement folks who look to Acts and they almost want to get dogmatic at being anti-meeting house and pro-meeting in the home. Well, homes of the wealthy sort that many of these Christians met in ancient uh, Europe didn't have our small little dining rooms, dens, and living rooms. No, they had halls that could host small congregations, kind of like a church sanctuary. Anyways, in fact, when Paul shows up at Ephesus after Corinth, where he's at here, Acts 19 tells us that he's again kicked out of the synagogue, and so he sets up church, quote, at a lecture hall. So what's my point? Am I anti-home meetings, pro-church facility? No, my point is is that when it comes to setting up church in any community, it's about reaching people with Christ. And whatever facility they meet in is just a matter of organization or practicality or availability, period. Presumably, eventually having a facility owned by a church, that is the people, would be another useful tool for outreach. But for the time being, somebody opened their home and Paul took it. And as we noted earlier, Paul's going to one day write this church here in Corinth there's going to be evidence of sectarianism. In revealing what he knows by stating, he says, My brothers, some from Chloe's household. Now the Greek here is more literally, the ones of Chloe have informed me that there are quarrels among you. The ones of Chloe. It could be a reference to a family under the care of somebody named Chloe. Or it could be a reference of what we might call a lowercase church a community of believers, an assembly who meets in the house belonging to Chloe as opposed to the one that Paul is meeting in it in our time in Titus Justice's house, which could still be meeting even by the time Paul is writing 1 Corinthians. And regardless of the sad reasons that Paul eventually writes the Corinthians, the fact that such letters exist tells us that what Paul is doing here in Acts 18 bore fruit. Acts 18.8 tells us that Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his whole household believed in the Lord. So this is the synagogue that Paul left. 
in the Greek suggests that Crispus could have been a leader of the synagogue and maybe just not one of the leaders with absolute power or authority. And so the same synagogue that kicked Paul out, so Paul set up the proverbial shop next door, that same synagogue eventually had a person go over to Paul's congregation and says, and many of the Corinthians who heard the message believed and were baptized. So despite the the frustrations and the arguments that ensued, Paul and the church's efforts were rewarded here. Reminds me of another story I heard of a church planter. He went to kind of a small town, unable to rent a church building, which is what some church planters do. Can we meet in the evening after you guys leave? The core group ended up renting a local community building each Sunday to do church. And before too long, there was this annually planned city council meeting. And unbeknownst to the church planning pastor, he finds there at that meeting that many locals are upset. He's hearing things like, well, this church meeting here, I guess the city can't plan anything else there. And and eventually, even though the church planners set up and tore down every Sunday, it was open every other day of the week, it was free. But the church planner said to himself, you know, I'm here to serve the city and not cause problems. And so no questions asked. The next day after the meeting, the pastor called up the powers that be of that local community building and said, hey, let me cover the rest of the month, but we'll be pulling out. We'll find some other place to rent. And they did. And I believe they even went without assembling for church for a few weeks, maybe even a month before they found another place finally to rent and they moved in there. Well, a few years later, as the church was finally growing and get a little bit off the ground, some of the most adamant people that were against the church meeting at the community building started showing up at that church. And the pastor asked them, glad you're here. I'm glad I'm, you know, not dead yet. And, and, uh, the, the people told the pastor, whenever we saw you react the way you did, pull out quickly, no questions asked, that kind of left an impression. So you never know what's going to happen. So, Church planting, you know, I would say what we would call it's kind of a trending thing among many denominations. I've listened to many podcasts. I've read a few books. I've discussed and interacted with not only pastors and friends, but also Baptists and Nazarenes. And a lot of churches and church denominations are on a church planting kick. But I think that's funny to word it that way because it's not really a kick. It's what we, the church universal, have been doing and should be doing. Moving to areas, planting communities of believers is what Paul did. You know, I've read a few history books of the yearly meeting, and only a generation ago it wasn't church planting. It was called church extension. (laughs) I've heard terms like outposts, mission points. And the fact is, is that it's needed. It's needed here in America. You know, I grew up in church hearing more about missionaries in foreign countries, which all of that is still needed too. But if you're not busy or if you're not interested in foreign church building, you can be busy and interested in local church planting. I read an article that in 2019, approximately 3,000 Protestant churches were started in the U.S., but 4,500 Protestant churches closed, according to the estimates from a Nashville-based LifeWay research. Then the pandemic came, because I was in 2019, right? 
So I already had this year where this was a net loss of close to 1,500 churches in America. And then let's close the remaining doors and force them to find alternate ways to minister during COVID. I can name many pastors who were immediately affected by COVID in one way or another. They got disgusted with ministry and left. Uh, their churches split over what to do because you could never make a good decision during COVID. Somebody was offended drastically. And so there are all these sorts of factors to figure. So some will say, why plant new churches when we should fix old ones? And as I just said, considering missionaries far away or church planting here, why not focus on both? Work on fixing old churches and plant new ones. In fact, there, some have said there is evidence to suggest that struggling for a struggling church to take up the project of supporting, sending, and working on a planning a new church kills two proverbial birds with one stone because it gives a struggling church now a solid mission of a group of people who say, what can we do now? So does Lewiston need another church or does Orfino or does Weipe or Pierce? Certainly not Stites. I mean, <laughs> or even further play, you know, as far as the Northwest Yearly Meeting of Friends goes, we're kind of like the, the middle north part, and it's just us and Post Falls River of Life Friends right now. We're the only two Friends churches in North Idaho. A lot of towns and cities, Lewiston, Clarkston, Moscow, Pullman, Coeur d'Alene, Hayden, Bonners Ferry. There's even some small communities like Kamiai or Woodland here and there in between, and I wonder... If you and I started praying, if God might have something up his sleeve. Are there God-centered, good churches in these communities? Yes, of course. And we would certainly pray for church unity and for God to work in those communities. But are there people who might not step into an established church, but if something new showed up in their community and the fellowship was friends, and if they just simply wondered, who in the world are these people? I wonder if God could give bread to people who are just hungry, right? Let's pray. Father, one thing that you don't need to sell any of us on is what we sang. People need the Lord. We know that people are hungry. And the sad thing is that a lot of people who are hungry don't even know what they're hungry for. People are thirsty um, some people have tried churches and due to maybe not the church itself or what's on the church's paper, but just due to sinners in a church, maybe they got a bad taste in their mouth. They walked away and they never want to try it again. Father, we don't know the reasons you call people. I, I, I've met people who have felt called. There is a church plant from yearly meeting friends planting in Newburgh, which is where our friends denomination is located. There's another friend's church planting a church there. Why? I don't know, but you lay it on people's hearts to go and plant churches. And people will sometimes show up to those churches. And so we just pray that if you would lay on our hearts to consider, Father, would you have us do anything in terms of church planting or supporting a church plant? It's not that we would disqualify any other gospel-centered church in the region where it's being planted, but... If you're calling someone or if you're nudging someone to to start something, help us to be wise and discerning supporters of your will and what is your purpose in these things. 
Father, you, you handed us a beautiful church and we've managed as sinners to cause our own problems, but thankful, we are thankful that you're a redeemer and that you redeem the things that we make tainted and tarnished. So help us to be a part of that redeeming process to continue to reach people for you. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.